0: Consider what it would be like if you were taken from your home, removed from your city and your country, and forced, forced to live in a foreign country. Consider even today, Afghan Christians or Afghans who helped the U.S. government, who really had to leave their country or else they would be hunted down and killed. Some are still hiding in Afghanistan today. When you're forced out of your country, because of the circumstances, it's no longer your home. Things feel foreign and weird. And and likely this has never happened to to most of us. Uh, Maybe happened to some of your parents or your grandparents. Uh, But even if you've lived in a different country for a time, even if you've traveled... It just, it's just not home. You're not used to the customs of that culture and and ways. You stick out a bit different. You're a bit different. Uh, this past summer, we were in Turkey. And we used to live there. But one thing I never quite got used to was the number of cats everywhere. I'm not a cat person. I'm thankful that God has put people in our church that are cat people. Uh, but I'm very allergic to cats. And in Turkey, they just... They, they will climb under your table and crawl up your leg if you're not careful. And I'm very jumpy. So I never felt quite at ease. I felt like I was in a different place. But if I grew up there, I probably would get accustomed to cats everywhere. The Apostle Peter calls Christians exiles. in 1 Peter uh, 111 he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Hebrews also calls Christians exiles. If you're in exile, you're prone to feel uncomfortable or prone to feel distress. And in this portion of Isaiah, God's people are exiled and distressed. They're in a land with a different language, different customs, and now they're likely all lower class or lower than lower class. They don't fit in. And when you're distressed, and when you're uncomfortable, you need comforting. And God in this text is teaching us that true comfort is only found in Jesus Christ. That true comfort is found only in Jesus Christ. Now we haven't been in Isaiah for a while. Curious by show of hands, who has been here when we were going through Isaiah chapters 1 to 39? So that's about half of you, a little over half. So just a quick uh, explanation, a, a broad view of Isaiah. Isaiah can be broken down into really three parts. Chapters 1 to 39... And some theologians have helpfully called that uh, God's king. God's king. And then chapters 40 to 55, which could be called God's servant. And then 56 to 66, which could be titled God's anointed, conquering king. We're going to try to get through... All of 66 before Christmas time. And I, I love preaching big chunks, but one of the temptations is to just go through every single line. If you've ever preached before, you know that temptation. I'm going to try not to do that. So there's going to be things, jewels, that I'm going to skip over in order for us to keep going, not just to Isaiah, but through other books of the Bible. Now, since we're just jumping into Isaiah the prophet, let me just give you some helpful things to uh, consider as we read this book. If you have a bulletin, there's still some bulletins left. Uh, I think you should have uh, one of these. Use it as a bookmark, stick it in your Bible. Um, I came across this outline. I modified it a little bit. uh, But it's a helpful survey and breakdown of the Old Testament or the First Testament. Um, So if you look there toward the middle you see the prophets before the exile now the exile is talking about the babylonian captivity when the babylons went into israel into jerusalem they took the jews out and made them live in their own land so those are the prophets before the exile and then you see wisdom literature and then you have the prophets of the exile the return from the exile ezra nehemiah nehemiah which philip just preached on and then at the very end you have the prophets after the exile So we're on... Stay with me now. Just just put on your thinking cap right now because this is a little little tricky in Isaiah right here. Okay? This is what's going on. Isaiah wrote this prior to Babylonian captivity. So prior to the Jews being exiled out of their land and brought into Babylon. However, the prophecies that we're looking at now, uh, they are written... Before the exile, but they're written in order to comfort Jews who are returning after the exile. Do you understand that? These are written before the exile, but they're written for Jews after the exile or, or while they're in exile. And we'll, as we go through the, the coming weeks, we'll see that more clearly. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that in the New Testament, and especially in Galatians explicitly that the church is called the Israel of God. The Israel of God is the Christian church. Another reminder, that prophecies often, not always, but often have two fulfillments. There's an immediate fulfillment, like a historical fulfillment coming up. And sometimes we see that fulfillment fulfilled in the scriptures itself. And sometimes that fulfillment is for later on. Either it happened when uh, the Romans came and, and conquered the temple or destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Or another fulfillment could be when Jesus comes back. You know, he came the first time, but he hasn't come the second time. Another thing to keep in mind is Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. The gospel is just so clear and explicit in these 66 chapters. Overall, Isaiah is trying to give hope to exiles, those who are cast off because of their sin, and whose heart, whose hearts need a comforter. OK, so there's kind of the preface to the series. Um, for our purposes today, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 41, or chapter 40, mainly. Uh, but also a little bit of 41. Go ahead and turn there in your pew Bibles. Some faith or Bible that you brought. Page 599. And I'm going to read chapter 40 verses 1 to 11. Chapter 40 verses 1 to 11. Most of our time this morning will be spent on uh, this first part. And then we'll uh, conclude in the, the second part. In a briefer way. So Isaiah, Isaiah chapter forty. Verses 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not Our sermon has three points today. First point is this. True comfort is only found... Uh, let's say it like this. The main point is this of the sermon. True comfort is only found in Jesus Christ. That's what we're getting after here. That's what 40 and 41 are about. 3 subpoints: True comfort is only found in Jesus Christ... The tender arms of Jesus. In the tender arms of Jesus. This prophecy, this prophecy is given prior to the Babylonian exile. So sometime uh, prior to 587, maybe 597 BC. But they're speaking about the comfort that Israel is going to experience from their God. So again, just a reminder, this events haven't happened. They haven't been exiled yet. But in some ways, they're supposed to carry this message with them as they're exiled in order to continue on and hoping in God's covenant faithfulness to them. So after 39 chapters of impending judgment, after Israel has been on trial for these chapters and declared guilty for their sin, God now has a robust, clear word of comfort and hope for his people. You see, what God is going to do, he's going to use the Babylonian empire, King Nebuchadnezzar, as his arm of judgment on his covenant people. He raises up this pagan king who doesn't worship him. I think around the year 586 BC. So so kids, we're talking about something that happened uh, around 2,500 years ago. And this king with his mighty army, they come into Jerusalem... And they capture other cities in Judah, and they take these people captive. And what's clear from chapters one to thirty-nine is that God raises up this evil nation as an arm of His judgment to come and gather His own people, because they are sinners. And as Isaiah said, one Isaiah one has said, they have become sick from their head to their toe; they are completely depraved. Full depravity. But there's hope amidst all these judgment passages. 1 to 39 is not just about judgment, there's a lot of hope in there. Uh, The stump of Jesse, the Prince of Peace. But at this point in the book, hope just explodes across the pages. There is so much comfort, so much joy, so much hope in chapters 40 and following. But you know what? You can't really understand, you can't really rejoice in it in the same way unless you understand the deserved judgment of God's people because of their sin. And so we enter chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Israel is distressed and they're in need of comfort. So so why are they in need of comfort? Well, because they're taken captive, they're exiles, they're at war. Not because merely some some border battle is going on, but because they are sinful. And because of their sin, God is judging them. You see, there would be no captivity if not for their bondage and their love of sin. But now God says to his people, listen up. There's this great invitation here in chapter 40, verse 1, to listen up and Be comforted by these words. Though they have forsaken God, God will not abandon his people. So look at verse 2 of chapter 40. Verse 2 says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The most clear way to translate this word, speak tenderly, is to speak to the heart of these people. Speak to the innermost heart of the people that their warfare is over. It is complete. There's no more war because their sin is pardoned. It's paid for. The whole reason for the captivity is because of the sin. And someone has pardoned their sin. The exile is over because someone's going to pave the way for their sin to be removed and blotted out. So now, this future prophecy, future even for when Isaiah was writing this. Now, as they're in exile, as they're in exiles in Babylonian captivity, they're supposed to look forward to this day when their sin will be pardoned and they'll be ushered back into their homeland and they will no longer be strangers and aliens. But they're here because of sin. And here, God means to comfort sinners that their sin... Will be paid for. And look at that line there that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's one of those verses that I've read many times, and I just, for some reason, I never quite figured out what it meant, and I never really researched it until this week. What this means is that uh, their sins are going to be forgiven from head to toe, a double portion of forgiveness, that there's no more stain, that they will be blotted out. That their sins will be covered. That the scarlet will be made white as snow. Almost a poetic way of saying they'll be doubly forgiven. Their debt will be completely forgiven. And then look at verse 3. Here's a voice is crying out. This voice is telling someone to prepare the way for Yahweh. Capital L-O-R-D. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, what's really important here is to notice that that is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that is, in our English translations, a way to say Yahweh, the great I am. I am who I am. The one Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where the temple, in the temple, the cherubim are flying around and crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in Israel's return from Babylonian captivity, some voice is supposed to go out there and prepare the way for God himself. To make a highway for God. Now turn back over a couple pages to Isaiah 35. Check this out. Look at chapter 8 verse 10. Uh, Sorry, chapter 35 verses 8 to 10. Follow along with me. Notice, this is right before the narrative of of, uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king invading Judah. It says this, And the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord, the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's how the prophecy section, the first, book, uh, first portion of Isaiah ends. And then you have this narrative of Hezekiah and the Assyrian king coming up to the walls. But Hezekiah, in an act of faithfulness, goes to God eventually. And God turns away the Assyrian army. And then Babylon. And then you have this other future prophecy which we find our way here but what's important to know is that the way is called the way of holiness this is the last word that we have before the events between the assyrian army and the king of judah and there's this highway of holiness as the ransom return to the wilderness and so what the wilderness is here don't think exodus wilderness wandering there the wilderness here is actually israel and judah itself the land has has been deserted for the most part, by God's people, they've squandered the gift of the land and now God is calling it the wilderness. But God says that I am going to create a way and it's going to be called the way of holiness and we're going to go back there because I love you so much. Have comfort, my people, that this surely will happen. You see, there's, this voice has a commission. And the commission is one of preparation and preparation, preparing the way for Yahweh Himself, and the way is to have people repent of their sins and turn from their idols, as chapter forty-one says, as we'll see. But also note that this preparation of Yahweh, this Yahweh preparatory passage, is quoted four times in the New Testament, all at the beginning of each gospel: Matthew, Mark. Luke and John. So let's turn to one of those places, uh, Luke chapter 3. Look at that. That's found on page 858 of your Pew Bible. So you're in exile, you hear this word of comfort. And God says it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. So your hope is that someone's going to rise up and prepare the way for God himself to lead his people back to the homeland. The beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 3, says this. Look at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Anas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Notice it, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance For the forgiveness of sin or the pardoning of sin, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Friends, what this is saying is that Jesus Christ is God. That is the logical conclusion here. That Jesus himself is God. He is the one we should ready our hearts for. He is the one that God, that, that God said we should be prepared for. Jesus is Yahweh. Consider the voice of repentance to make way the tender arms of Jesus As Jesus says in the gospel of Mark, the time is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus will come to us in order to do it. You see, the promise is that God is coming to his people. And John the Baptist is a prophet raised up to prepare the way for God himself, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon. And I wonder if your knee-jerk reaction is to go to a certain text. What, what just humor me, see if you if we all have this same idea here. We usually go to what? John one one, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was God, the words with God, the Word was God. Yeah, get that. Well they're ready for that. <laughs> like you you used to go you open with that, like like good luck. I just wonder what a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon would say to this text. To kindly show them that, no, Jesus is God. Look at Isaiah 40. Look at Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. John the Baptist is the one preparing the way of the Lord Jesus, of Yahweh. Now look at verses 6 to 8. We have a new voice entering into Zim. We really have two voices and they, they interact with each other. They're comparing the frailty of humans with the loyal commitment of God. Mankind is like grass or like a flower. It's beautiful and looks strong. But in the end, the grass withers and the flower slowly fades and the flower falls. And in case you didn't make that connection, the poetry can tells you really clearly here. <laughs> People are grass. Contrastingly, the word of our God will stand forever. Now, if you're Jewish, you need this word. If you're you're Jewish and you have lived in the time of the kings of Israel and you're familiar with the ups and downs of Israel's faithfulness. Because what hope do you have that Israel is going to sustain their word? They've been unfaithful so many times, even though God's been merciful so many times. You might be hopeful about verses 1 to 5, but here God is saying something slightly different. God's saying that my message will stand forever. My message of sin that is pardoned and forgiven will stand forever. That the good news, the gospel, will stand forever. Uh, well, how do we know that? We'll we have a really helpful place in 1 in Peter, which says this. It's the one that Aaron Day read earlier and and led us through a prayer confession. First Peter 1.22 says that we have already purified our souls because we have been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living word of God. And then Peter quotes Isaiah here. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then it says... And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's as if Peter has scrolls open of Isaiah and said, this is the gospel. You're no longer in Babylonian captivity, living like exiles. We live on the other side of that. John the Baptist prepared the way. Jesus came. Jesus lived the perfect life. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave and he ascended on high and he sits at the right seat of the Father in heaven. This is the good news that was preached to you. Remember it. Walk in it. You can never, ever, ever lose this Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. My friend, just notice the tender arms of the Messiah King in this text. He doesn't scold the people when they come to him. He comes tenderly. As Jesus says in Matthew all of you who are weary and heavy-hearted because of your sin, come to me and I will give you rest. You see, Jesus, when he lived, he invited prostitutes and tax collectors and pimps and greedy Wall Street capitalists and Marxists. He invites straight-ticket Republicans and straight-ticket Democrats. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are tired of spinning their wheels and working for approval, and working for love. I love you, despite the way that you have sinned against me. And I'll give you rest. I'll be tender to you. Friends, this is the good news that is worth proclaiming in verses 9 to 11. This is what the ransom people have made, as the ransom people have made their way back to Jerusalem via the highway of holiness, and now become a herald of good news. So God is using this real event of His people being taken out of Babylon back into their homeland as a foretaste of the great deliverance when His people, though he live as exiles in this world, will be brought up and taken to Him in glory forever. You see the wisdom of the Bible. Who could man could create this stuff up, friend? This is divinely inspired. And now this voice says that you don't have to live in fear anymore. The voice says behold your god. He comes with might and rules for him and and what does God get out of this divine plan? God gets his people, which is called his reward in verse 10. And then look how he treats his reward in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. Praise God, Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. The shepherd of our souls who is not severe with us because of our sin, but is tender toward us. What a good and faithful groom he is. Friends, what kind of groom would ever turn his back on a weeping bride? What kind of shepherd would ever look at a sheep and see it injured there and not do anything? What good king would ever be unjust toward his people? Jesus faithfully loves his bride. bride. He goes after his sheep and he justly rules his people. Jesus Christ is in the work of saving lost sinners. Not for a moment did he ever shrink back from the path of the cross. His whole heart was fixed on pardoning sinners. This is his business. This is his mission. This is his heartbeat. He wanted lambs in his flock. His love is tender and his soul delights in his reward, his sheep. You catch that? We are his reward. Those of us who are sinners. And then look and behold Jesus and say, I am a sinner and I need saving. He says, you're my reward. Let me get you. I'm going to carry you throughout the rest of this life and on into eternity. If you're here and you're not in the fold of Christ, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, whether you're five years old whether you're you're 90 years old. Let me just try to persuade you of this. Know that just as Jesus was ready to suffer for sinners, so he is always ready to save sinners. If you come to Christ by faith, you should never doubt his willingness to receive you and pardon all your sins. He is tender. No matter what you've done in your past, Jesus is approachable. And he calls you even today through the preaching of his word to come to him. Why are you waiting? Pick up God's word. Read it. Find me after service. Find someone else that's part of this church. We'd love to spend time talking to you about the gospel of Christ. But true comfort can't be found in a Jesus who is only tender. No, this is very important. True comfort cannot be found only in a Jesus who is tender. If he's tender, yet powerless, that would make him approachable, would make him kind, would make him gentle, but it would leave us, his sheep, vulnerable to attacks and in perpetual inability to overcome sin. Second point, true comfort is only found in Jesus Christ's mighty arms. The mighty arms of Jesus. True comfort is only found in the mighty arms of Jesus. Look at verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 12. He starts explaining his might now. You see how this works? He's approachable, he's tender. But guess what? He's also powerful. His might is now set out, set forth in rhetorical questions. So look there. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The the answer is no one. So, next time you you go to the ocean, uh, take one of your hands, cup the water, and just consider that God is saying no one is able to measure the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the uh, Pacific Ocean in the hollow of their hands but me. And then he says, Who has weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in bounce? Next time you're in the Rockies or the Appalachian Mountains, just try to weigh them. It's impossible. Only God can do this. As we keep going through the text, no one shows him counsel. He did not consult with anyone for knowledge because he is the fount of knowledge. He knows all things. All nations are a drop in the bucket. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Russian military, the Chinese military, the Tigray Liberations people front in Ethiopia. They're all but a drop in the bucket. See what this poetry is trying to get us to understand? God is great. And even the greatest armies of this world are as nothing compared to him. So next time you wash dishes and there's that one drop on the plate, that's what God's saying. That's like the nations to me. They are nothing compared to me. The most terrifying militaries and militias in the world are as nothing compared to this God. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God can number the stars because God made the stars. Now we can see from earth roughly 5,000 stars. At one th- Time each night, we can only see 2,500 because the Earth is blocking the other 2,500. Now, we live in the Milky Way galaxy. Kids, did you know that the galaxy that you live in is called the Milky Way, kind of like that candy bar? The Milky Way, they still make those? Okay, I don't know if Snickers usurped it because it's a superior candy bar or not. So, the Milky Way galaxy is where we live. In our galaxy alone, there's 400 billion stars. Just sit in that. Our galaxy has 400 billion stars. There are an estimated 170 billion galaxies. 170 billion galaxies. So, if you do the math, some galaxies have more than 400 billion stars, some have less. But if you do the math, that's septillion stars. That's a one followed by 24 zero stars. And that's just the ones that we can estimate. And God knows them all. He knows every single planet, every single galaxy, every single star. The ones that we can see and the ones we can't. He is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And this God longs to comfort you. Small you. You who still struggle with your sin. You still know the truth and yet... Daily, sometimes hourly, are caught up in sin. God longs to comfort you. Look at verse 30. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. Right? You see this picture? He's using the human being. We live maybe 80, 90, 100 something years. Even at our best, which I think is at the age of 25, even at our best, we don't compare to God. I played pickleball last night because I'm scared of getting hurt playing basketball. So I've graduated to pickleball. I slept on my wrist in a weird way two months ago and it's sore. I did a backhand playing pickleball with an oversized wiffle ball and an oversized ping pong paddle. And I woke up this morning really sore. My strength has limits. And I walk into the office this morning. Philip's kind of limping around. He says, I turned my ankle playing pickleball last night. We're so weak. We think we're so strong, don't we? We honestly think that we're full of strength. But compared to God, we are nothing. We got hurt playing a contactless sport. So, our bodies are a reminder that we're frail and that God is strong and He strengthens our spirits. One day we'll get renewed bodies in the resurrection. And friends, we're able to trust Him because He's mighty, He's strong, He's able to strengthen us when we're weary. Be comforted by a Jesus who's not just tender. Be careful of that lie, it's very strong in our day and age. Be comforted by Jesus who is tender and strong, strong and kind. That's true comfort, church. All right, lastly, beware of false comforts. Beware of false comforts. Look at this response to the nations. The nations are seeing this God raising up this army, as we'll find out. This army is the Persian army led by Cyrus the Great. And he raises him up. He, Cyrus the Great overtakes the Babylonians. This is in a few, few more chapters. But you see it in, um, you see it there, right there, in chapter 41, uh, at the very beginning. Uh, verse 2, 41-2. Two, Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. That's Cyrus. A real historical figure, really, here in the Bible. That's Cyrus. And we'll look more at that uh, in weeks to come. But God raises him up to overcome the Babylonians. And Cyrus is kind to the Jewish people and he ushers them in in many ways back to their homeland. But the response of the nations because of Cyrus is one of fear. And what do they do? They start crafting idols. They start calling the silversmith. So look at 41.7 or 41.6. They see this great army coming, God's judgment. They say, everyone help his neighbor and say to his brother, be strong. Verse 7, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with hammer him, the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. It's the equivalent of, of us, you know, readying the tanks and the airplanes or the, the bank accounts. And having these false peace when God's judgment is at hand. But God says, I am with you, my people, as we fly through he says, "Do not be dismayed." We sang about this in a song earlier. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. My righteous right hand with my righteous right hand. Behold, you are all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you, they shall be as nothing and shall perish. But let's look at forty-one twenty-nine. Kind of just sums up the rest of chapter forty-one as we conclude here. Forty-one twenty-nine says this: Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Friends, they are false comforts. Anything but Jesus Christ, anyone but Jesus Christ is a false comfort when it comes to dealing with our consciences, when it comes to dealing with sin. Jesus is the one who provides true comfort. Psalm 106 says that God's people serve their idols And they became a snare to them. Isaiah 2.8 says. Their land is full of worthless idols. They worship the work of their hands. What their fingers have made. Isaiah 2. On that day people will throw their worthless idols of silver and gold. Which they made to worship to the moles and to the bats. That is the hope. God is saying to his people. Stop looking to idols for your comfort. And guess what? He doesn't scold them here. He speaks to them tenderly. And so church, the Israel of God, idols are talked about also in the New Testament. Most of us here are not tempted with making or crafting an idol out of metal, I'm guessing. Most of us are probably tempted when we are distressed to turn on Netflix and to escape for a little bit. Most of us are maybe tempted to find our comfort in food Or in an unhealthy relationship. But friends. Those two can be idols. Colossians 3 says put to death anything that. Is impure in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And covetousness which is idolatry. It's a miserable life. When a Christian who knows the truth continues to go to idols. I've been there before. We're some of the most unhappy people because we know the truth and God loves us so much that he's not going to give us over to that idolatry. And so we live in a state of misery until one day the dross comes up and we realize what God's doing all along. He's giving us into what we desire so that we can see what truly is beautiful and good, which is his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, false comforts feel comfortable. However, they do nothing to help with the problem of sin. They do not console the tired heart. And brothers and sisters, as Christians, we all look around toward these false idols. I wonder what it is for you this morning. What lie do you tell yourself this afternoon or tomorrow morning that this is more comfortable, this is more consoling than Jesus Christ? Go to Jesus. He is tender with his people. He is tendered with the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. Three points of application. Comfort yourselves with this news. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, preach the gospel to yourself. Know his might and his tenderness. Tell yourself that. Get in his word. This will lead to true comfort in this life. Comfort from sin that you commit. Comfort from sin committed against you. Comfort from sin in this fallen world. Secondly, comfort your church with this news. Let's be gospeling to one another. Let's tell one another the good news. If a brother or sister is weary, tell them about the God who loves them. Tell them about their chief shepherd. Remind them. Pray with them. Read with them. Come to church together. Prioritize this gathering. Join a growth group or a hospitality group where we tell the gospel to one another. Have good friends who love you enough to tell you about the tenderness of Jesus and the might of Jesus. Have good friends to warn you about the evils of sin. See, comfort only comes if you have a realistic view of how uncomfortable your situation is. Sin is horrible. And we need to remind ourselves of the severity of the the, the vileness of sin and the greatness and the tenderness of christ lastly let's comfort sinners with this good news this is a this is a herald this is a pronouncement comfort is provided in the proclamation of his word praise god that we're a church that cares about the least reach of the unreached nations of the world let's not let that grow cold let's talk about that how let's strategize how we can plant gospel preaching churches in places where there is no comforting news let's mourn together that there's no gospel light in so many places around the globe let's invite non-christian neighbors into our home with one another let's praise god publicly for this good news and let's do this until this hardship is over. Friends, we are exiles in this world. We will always be wrestling with sin to a degree. It doesn't just go away when you're 40 or when you're 80. Let's look forward to the day that we will completely be with Jesus and He will bring us to Zion, our heavenly home, the new Jerusalem. Friends, what a day that will be. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that your comforting news would comfort us this morning. Thank you, O oh Jesus, that you do not turn us away even when we willfully and knowingly sin against you. But your news is one of pardoning, of forgiveness. And then your love is one of faithfulness. You hold us by our right hand. You take us. You comfort us. You lead us by still waters make us lie down in green pastures. This is our God. May we praise you through song now. In Christ's name, amen.